Hello, and welcome to The Lies Podcast. My name is Mike Mills, and today on The Lies Podcast, we're going to be talking about a very pervasive lie, one I'm going to call the Cinderella lie. The Cinderella lie is found in romantic comedies, action movies, uh, television shows, and probably most famously in your Disney princess type movies. Uh, And that lie is the happily ever after. And they lived happily ever after. Now, I think most of us know that that's not realistic at all. In fact, maybe the better ending to a, uh, a fairy tale type movie where the couple gets married at the end, the prince and the princess get married and ride off into the sunset rather than saying, and they lived happily ever after perhaps perhaps it would be more honest to say and the adventure continues now i've been going through uh as we do the the uh, lies podcast I've been going through what i call the, the matrix of truth uh just a list of questions basically that we hold these lies up to now the thing that's a little different about this one is that it's perhaps not promoted so much by any particular scripture. As I've mentioned before, a lot of times these lies are believed and they're they're embraced because there's some scripture that's being taken out of context. And I thought about this quite a bit, and I couldn't think of any particular scripture that made me think, yeah, this is this is something that's being taught in the church and and we need to to deal with this this lie. I think that it's subtly taught in the church. I don't think there's anyone, anyone in church, any pastor saying from the pulpit, if you just get married, all your problems will go away. If you just get married, your, your lust issue will disappear. If you just get married, everything will be better. I don't, I don't think any pastors say that. I mean, it seems a little wackadoodle, but this is something again, that, that I have seen over and over and over. I used to work at a college. And at the college, we had a very high uh, female-to-male ratio. And what I saw over and over again were so many of these girls getting involved with with the wrong guys. And some of them, I remember some of them even telling me, I know he's not the right guy for me. But the attitude seemed to be, but he's somebody. He's not the right guy, but at least it's somebody. And I think, you know, this is so tragic. So when we get toward the end, I think what I'll do is I'll talk a little bit about maybe in the church how this lie is uh, is promoted a little bit. So anyway, let's let's go take it to the matrix of truth. So the first question on the matrix of truth was, what is the lie? And the lie, of course, that we're talking about today is the happily ever after lie. If I just get married, then I'll be happy. And so the next couple of questions we have is, you know, what scripture is used to support the lie and what's the context of that scripture? And again, I don't, I don't, couldn't really think of one. Maybe you can, and if you can, uh, on my Facebook page, throw up that up in the uh, comments, I'd appreciate it. So the next question is, what is the truth? What is the truth? Well, first of all, if we're going to look at the Bible, we're going to find that the purpose of marriage is not for my personal happiness. It's much more. Uh, it's much more along the lines of my personal holiness, and if you look in 
Ephesians uh, chapter uh, chapter five, uh, there's this great example of uh, of this being a picture concerning Christ in the church. Uh, it says that in verse 32, talking about marriage. It's a picture of concerning Christ in the church. And there's a whole a whole uh, picture there of sacrificial love, of loving for the sake of the other. Love it, love it. <laughs> Excuse me while I try to get my tongue to work today. Um, loving for the sake of the other. You know, in Philippians, it talks about, uh, you know, have this have this same mind in you, uh, speaking of the mind of Christ, putting others first in all your ways, esteem others higher than yourself. You know, in our modern day culture, uh, we're told all the time that self-esteem is what we need, but the Bible says, no, no, you need others' esteem, and especially in marriage. So when it says, what is the truth about this lie? Well, I think most of us, we just kind of know right off, like, well, no, marriage isn't the answer. You know, it's been often said that 50% marriage of marriages end in divorce, the other 50% end in death, um, and those aren't good statistics. I mean, it's, that's a skewed and kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, line, but but so many marriages end in divorce because I believe for many of them, they began with unrealistic expectations. And one of the things that I do when I talk to people that are going to be married, back when I used to do um, some premarital counseling, is I would have talked to them a lot about their their expectations and their their preconceptions. You know, what what do you what do you think is going to be uh, how your marriage is going to work? What what preconceived ideas do you think you have? And and most people don't think they have that many until they have their first holiday with the other side of the family and they realize like, whoa, they do things differently, you know? Um, but anyway, what I wanted to point out was something and I'll tell you a little story about something that happened to me years ago as a youth pastor. And this kind of goes into what I believe the truth is when we talk about this lie of, if I just get married, then I'll be happy. And maybe what the root, the very root, of the problem is. And it goes back uh, to me to this time I, when I first became a youth pastor, I was teaching a lesson or I was going to teach a lesson about uh, the, about dating basically, and kind of pointing out that the Bible doesn't really teach that we need to go and date. You know, it's a very uh, Western idea that you go out and you get to know somebody and, and uh, you put on a show, you know, put on your best clothes, be on your best behavior so that you can impress this person so that they will like you. And hopefully you will like them and you'll fall in love with each other and then you'll get married. And the whole thing may have been based on you misrepresenting yourself, which I have definitely seen a lot of people do. And that might seem cynical. And, and I'm, I'm just kind of I'm giving you just a, a teeny slice of what I was one of the many things I was talking about. Uh, because the bottom line was that I was trying to get across to these kids was, hey, your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He says, you know, that's what Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Make your goal pursuing Jesus, not pursuing this other person. And so I sent the kids off into two separate rooms, sent the boys into one room and the girls in one room. And there were probably, I don't know, 12 or 15 kids and so I sent them into in separate rooms, and I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you 
to take a piece of paper, pick somebody in your group to be the secretary, and write down the following things. Write down why people want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And I said, not you necessarily, but people, you know, your friends, people that you come in contact with. Um, you know, what you see is just being alive in this world. Why do people want a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And so they, uh, they came back, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later, they came back and they handed up their papers. Um, actually maybe they read their papers to me. I don't really remember, but I do remember this. I had a white, big whiteboard on the wall and I started white writing down on the whiteboard, all the things that they were saying. And it was, and what was amazing to me was their lists were exactly the same. The only difference was that the boys had sex on their list and the girls didn't, but they had, the list was basically the same. And the list said things like someone who I can tell anything, someone who will always be there for me, somebody that will never leave me, you know, somebody in, in, and I was going down this list and I was getting really excited. And I kept pointing up like, do you guys see this? Do you see what I'm writing down? And they were like, of course we see it. We're, we're the ones that told you those things. But, but I saw something on that board that, that really blew my mind and it kind of solidified something to me. And I said, do you see this? Look at these things on this board. Look at these things on this board. Look at these things. Someone who will always be there for me, someone who will never leave me. And I went down their big list and I said, do, do you realize that there's not a single thing written on this board that a boyfriend or a girlfriend can even do? Do you realize that there's not a thing on this board? that no husband or wife could ever do. There's nothing on this board that any human could ever do. What you guys wrote down describes Jesus Christ. And it blew my mind because I, 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 and I kept saying, I'm like, do you guys see? I asked you to go in that room and write down why they want a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you came back with a description of Jesus, but you didn't even realize that it was a description of Jesus. I didn't send you in there asking you to describe Jesus. I sent you in there to write down why people want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you came back with a description of Jesus. You see, nobody else fills that gap. Nobody else can fill that gap. Nobody else can do that job. Only Jesus can. So what does that what did that tell me? Well, it opened my eyes to something about so much of the idea of dating and even uh, what people are expecting when they get marriage or when they get married. And that is what I would call uh, well, I think it's the problem is is it's idolatry, right? If if we're gonna define idolatry as uh, perhaps giving to something or someone other than God, what only God is due. Okay, so like worship. Only God is worthy of worship. And also looking to something other than God to provide what only God can provide. Now, one of the things I love about the book of First John is the way it ends. If you ever read First John, First John 5.21, John ends after seeing a whole lot of stuff he ends with this kind of almost out of the blue little saying. He says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And it always struck me as odd until I realized like this is really the root of all sin. 
you know, the root of so much of our sin is that we are looking to something other than God to provide for us what only God can provide. We are seeking out counterfeits, right? You think about the old idolatry of, you know, like in the book of Isaiah, he talks about you chop down a tree, you carve a face, you cover it with silver and gold and ornaments, and then you carry it to your house and you worship what you just made. And on the leftover pieces of your God, you cook dinner. And when you have to move, you put your God in a wagon and you move your God. You know, he just talks about the ridiculousness of it. And most of us think about, I think, idolatry that way. I think about somebody bowing down to some statue. But the, the idea for them wasn't just, well, I have this statue and I want to bow down to a statue. But it was the idea that the statue represents this God that I'm going to worship. And he's going to give me something. By me worshiping him, he's going to give me something. And if you're a Christian today, that should sound very backwards to you. Because as a Christian, I don't worship God because he's going to give me something. I worship God because of what he already gave me. You see, I don't, I don't love Jesus so that he'll love me. I love Jesus because he loved me. And I know he loved me because he died on the cross for me to pay the price for my sins, to have the wrath of God poured out upon him for this, for my sins, to take on my sin and shame. And so I want to worship him, not because I get something out of it, because I already got something. I've received this great salvation, this gift of, 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 a. Uh, righteousness of um, forgiveness. I've been given this great gift. And so I want to, I'm going to worship him for what he has done and not so that I can get something out of the deal. And so again, when we start talking about idolatry, uh, John brings this up because it's, it's, it's kind of the root of the problems. He says earlier back in um, verse uh, or chapter two, verse uh, 15, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And what's interesting to me about that is that when he says, do not love the world or the things of the world, he uses a very distinct word for love. Now, if you've spent much time in church or studying the Bible or you've, you've heard any word studies, um, you probably have come across this word study of the word love in the New Testament. Because there are multiple words for love in the Greek language that have been translated all love. But they there are different they have different meanings. There's uh, there's eros, meaning like romantic love. And then there's phileo, which is like brotherly love. You hear Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, phileo. And then there's uh, agape or agapeo. And people usually, when they define agape, they would say things like agape speaks of the love of God. And I, I really think that that's uh, an unfortunate uh, way of describing it because in this verse where John says, don't love the world or the things of the world. He doesn't use eros or phileo. He uses agape. And so I think a better idea for this word agape is the idea of a sacrificial love, right? Because we know God loved us at a cost to himself. 
And so there's a level of commitment involved in this love. There's a self-sacrifice that goes into this agape love. And I believe that's the idea that, that John's giving us here. Is he, when he says, don't love the world or don't love the things of the world, he's talking about don't have a sacrificial love for the world, right? Because here's the truth about idols, about God, about false gods, and well, and about the true God. Here's the here's here's a, an important truth. I really hope you can hold on to this one and think about this. You will sacrifice for your God. You will sacrifice for your God. You will make sacrifices for your God. And this can be, this can go all different ways. You know, I've seen people make all kinds of strange sacrifices for their God. And, and, and I'm not talking about God, big G, I'm talking about God, little G, the idolatry. And this is, again, when we start talking about this lie of the happily ever after. Making sacrifices, saying, you know, this guy is not really the right guy, but he's a guy. And I'm looking to him to provide for me the happily ever after. Or maybe he is the right guy, but I'm still looking to him for the happily ever after. What about you haven't spent any time with the Lord? You haven't read your Bible? You haven't prayed at all? And, you know, that's been going on for a while. And, and yet you've been binge watching some television show for three hours a day. And you have to say then, okay, where, where's the sacrifice being made in my life? Am I sacrificing my time with the creator of the universe, with God, so that I can watch the show? So is the show your idol or, you know, is, you're watching this thing for your entertainment value, but you're sac making a sacrifice for the God being probably the God of your own flesh and entertainment. And I've definitely been there on that one myself. But you will make sacrifices for your God. And so, again, as we make our way down the matrix of truth, I wanted to point this out, that so much of what we would call dating relationships and even uh, people getting married, a lot of times it's it's just straight out of idolatry. And so the next question on the matrix of truth is, how does this lie call into question God's plan, promise, provision, and person? And I think it does all of those because it's saying, I'm not trusting in God's plan. I'm trusting in my plan. I'm going to marry this person and it's going to make my life all better. What about God's promise or promises? You know, when he says, when I, as of the one I said earlier, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. When we start going around that, it's like, well, you know, rather than seeking first the kingdom of God, I'm seeking first my own contentment, my own uh, sense of safety. Um, sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's a physical thing, looking for somebody to fulfill my my physical desires and needs. Sometimes it's uh, security, and and that goes into the next one. How does this call into question God's provision? Well, again, it's looking for someone else looking to a person to provide for you what only God can provide. If you are looking for some person who will always be there for you, who will love you unconditionally, who will never leave you, well, that's Jesus. That's not a spouse. Now, as a spouse, I can strive for those things, and I probably should strive for those things because I'd be very Christ-like. 
But if I'm looking for that other person to be that for me, I've got a big problem. So the next question is, how does this elevate man and demote God? Well, it makes a sinful human person your savior. It's replacing God with a person. It's saying, this is the person who I'm looking to for my contentment, my joy, for my peace, and probably for my happiness too. So I think that's definitely the elevation of man. And it demotes God because you're saying, God, no, no, you know, Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough. You know, before I got married, my mother-in-law asked me if I would listen to a series of uh, sermons uh, from the, uh, or they were based on the uh, the Song of Solomon. And one of the things that the the uh, pastor who is, uh, who is speaking, I believe it was Tommy Nelson, uh, I believe what he said was, he said, you're not even ready to date until you are content to be single. So you're not ready to date until you're content to be single. And I didn't really like his, his terminology of dating, but I understood what he was saying. What he was saying was, you need to be content with Jesus. He needs to be enough for you because Jesus is not enough for you. You need some person. Well, they're never going to be enough for you. And as a, in a marriage, I don't want to be in a marriage with somebody who is expecting me to be the source of their peace, their joy, their happiness, their contentment, et cetera, et cetera. I can't, I can't provide all that. And I hate to be looking at somebody else saying, I want you to provide all this for me. I much rather be married to someone and praise the Lord, I am, who looks to Jesus for those things, who looks to Jesus for those things, is not expecting me to be the source of all of those things. And I don't, I don't look to her to be the source of those things. Now, does my wife oftentimes provide those things? Absolutely. But I'm not looking to her for it. She's not the source. She's not the, uh, I'm not dependent upon her for that. All right. So, one of the next questions on the, the matrix of truth was, how does this appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life? So the idea of pleasure, prosperity, popularity, and power. And I think we've talked about this a bit already, um, and that there's a very self-centered idea here to what love is. Love ends up being what they offer me. What they offer me. So what we might call, I love tacos. I love tacos. Do you love tacos? Do you love tacos? I love tacos. Well, my love for tacos is not self-sacrificial. Um, I don't say I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to sacrifice my own happiness, my own desires, my own dreams, my own, just, I'm going to sacrifice, I'm laying down my life for tacos. No, now the tacos might be fatty and bad for me and cause uh, plaque buildup in my arteries. And I may be sacrificing, my, sacrificing myself for what, tacos offer me, but I'm not sacrificing myself for tacos. So it's not a sacrificial commitment to tacos. It's I love how tacos make me feel, which is technically not love at all. It's lust, right? It's the lust, it's the, it's the lust of the flesh, lust of, um, lust of the eye. It's I want what they offer me. And this is oftentimes what happens. People get married to somebody and they go, I want what this person offers me. Now, 
the reason I think a lot of times things work out nicely at the beginning is because you both want what the other person offers you. Now, I'm not saying that that's all how everybody that's not a Christian's marriage is, but oftentimes that's how they start off. And you'll even get these ideas and people say, well, marriage, marriage is give and take. It's 50-50. Marriage is 50-50. But, but that's not really accurate. Marriage is more like 100-100. You know, when you get married, if you've ever had traditional wedding vows, the traditional wedding vows are very deliberate, and I love I love them myself. I love traditional wedding vows. I love the idea of somebody coming forward, um, the man standing at the altar, the bride coming down to meet him. I love that because it's such a picture of Jesus, Jesus waiting for us to come to him. You know, he's there waiting, ready to enter into this covenant with us. And here we come to him before witnesses, you know, and we enter into this covenant. And what I love is the husband goes first. The husband goes first, right? So he says, this is what I will do. I will do these things. I will do these things. He doesn't say I might. He says, I do. And I will. Those are the answers. You know, will you promise to love her, to cherish her through sickness and health? As long as most feel I, I will. And then he turns to her, or the pastor turns to her and asks the same the same questions, and she says, I will. Now, what's beautiful about that is that in this covenant, there are no conditions laid down. You're both coming to it saying, I will. It's not an I will if. Right? How long does the covenant last? Well, usually he says, as long as you both shall live, I will. Do you take them to be your lawfully wedded wife? As long as you believe, I do. I will. You know, it's, I'm entering into this. A pastor friend of mine said one time he was doing a marriage and the people said they wanted, they wanted him to say, not as long as you both shall live, but as long as you both shall love. And he was like, yikes, <laughs> yikes. There's a big loophole for escape. Well, I don't love you anymore. I'm out. But that's oftentimes what people do anyway, right? Because their expectation is that this is going to provide for them what only Jesus can provide for them. And when the marriage doesn't, then they start looking for something else to provide for them, what only Jesus can provide for them. And if they don't look to Jesus to get it, they're going to look someplace else and they're going to try something else. They're going to start to say like, you know what? I'm unhappy in this marriage. I'm not happy. I need to be happy. And then you get to that and a lie we'll deal with in a future episode. God just wants me to be happy. So anyway, I, what I was saying about I love these marriage vows is that they are an unconditional covenant. You are entering in saying, I will. This is what I will do. I'm going to do these things. And the other person says, I will do these things. And then you, as a spouse, have entered into this commitment, which sadly in our culture today, people don't have the same value to their words and commitments that they used to. But doesn't matter. You can still have that value in your commitments and say, this is what I said I will do. It doesn't matter what she does or it doesn't matter what he does. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do my job because here's the thing in marriage, your job is to do your job and that's your job. It doesn't matter if she's not doing her job. 
you see, one of the big problems in marriages is that we start getting focused on the other person not doing their job. Because oftentimes when you think about what their jobs are as described by scripture, um, it benefits me, right? When it says, you know, wives, respect your husbands. Well, that benefits me. But when it says husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Oh, he laid down his life, sacrificial. Well, who does that benefit? That benefits her. And so I started thinking, well, I want her to do her part. You need to do your part because my focus has now become on me and what I want in making me happy because it's her job to provide for me the happily ever after. And she's looking at me saying, well, you're being a jerk. I'm not going to do my part. I don't want to do what I'm called to do. I'm not going to do what God's put upon me to do because you're not doing your part. And what happens? Then nobody does their part and the marriage gets worse and worse and worse. And that's not how it's supposed to work because you see 100%, 100%, not 50-50. When 50-50 is like, well, you're not doing your 50. I'm not doing my 50. Well, 100%, 100% means I just do my part. I do my job. That's my job, to do my job. And my job makes it easier for them to do their job. Even if they're not doing their job, I just keep doing my job. I just keep doing what God's called me to do. If my wife is not showing me respect, I'll just keep loving her like Christ loved the church. I'll just keep doing my job. No buts, no, well, but she, but she, no, just keep doing your job. Just keep doing your part. So I think it's pretty easy to see the appeal of this. I mean, who, how can happily ever after not appeal to people? But it definitely appeals to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye. And, and it can even to the pride of life. People want this idea of having the perfect marriage, having people admire them. I know when I was, I remember like in the teen years, people like having a crush on some girl or on some guy, but he wasn't popular enough or he wasn't good looking enough or she wasn't good looking enough. And the person was like, oh, I'd love to date them, but my friends would make fun of me. You know, I think what a strange thing, you know, you like that person, you admire that person, but you care so much about what your friends think. Um, hopefully that doesn't happen in marriage, but I'm sure it does. I'm sure there are those people that get married because of, uh, you know, what that person offers them. That person offers them a degree of power and influence. I'm marrying a powerful man. I'm marrying a, a woman who has uh, has uh, influence. She's an influencer or whatever. Who knows? Anyway, uh, let's move on to the next one. The next thing on the matrix of truth is what is the fruit? Because bad theology will result in bad fruit. And we talked about uh, in a previous episode about how uh, the Bible talks about Christians who continue in sin experience slavery, shame, and death. And I think a big one here, when this becomes our pursuit, we we experience those things like we do anytime we're, we're practicing idolatry. Uh, but the big one is just going to be that that death, that death to our joy. It's one of those strange things when you pursue happiness, you know, and a lot of people have that very American idea of like, we have the, the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But oftentimes when we pursue the happiness, it becomes a very self-centered pursuit, which ends up making everyone around us very unhappy. And so one of the big uh, negative fruits of this is the the disappointment. There's disappointment because when you have an expectation of happily ever after, anything less 
is going to leave you a little disappointed when you find out that this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. There can become a level of disappointment, depression, bitterness, resentment toward that person. And divorce. And to think that divorce doesn't damage you, it, it absolutely damages you. And if there's children involved, well, there's an even bigger thing. A lot of times people don't think about the ripple effects of divorce because they're, they're just thinking about, again, their own happily ever after. And they don't think about, how's this going to affect my family? How's this going to affect my extended family? Where now these people that love each other because their in-laws are suddenly forced to take sides or to not enjoy each other's company, um, the destruction of relationships, things like that. It's, it's heartbreaking, you know, and I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say or talk about being trapped in an unhappy marriage? Well, it's not necessarily because they believed at the beginning, I'm going to live happily ever after. That's not, I'm, I'm not saying everybody who gets married believes that or thinks, hey, I'm going to be happily ever after. But there is definitely a large percentage of the population who believes that marriage is the answer. And if you are a Christian today, I think you know that Jesus is the answer. All right, some additional questions to consider. This is one of the things I wrote down at the bottom of the Truth Matrix. And one of them is, why do people seem to embrace this? Well, first of all, it's really a nice little idea. I mean, and, and if you've been hearing it since you were a child and they lived happily ever after, and they lived happily ever after, you kind of like that. You know, that fairy tale idea is really nice. You know, when you're watching the romantic comedies and, oh, it all comes together in the end, oh, it's kind of nice. You know, when you're watching your Hallmark Christmas movies and you're, well, you already know what's going to happen. They're going to end up together at the end. Oh, it's kind of nice, but it's just a dream. But I, I wonder if, you know, perhaps it's because people inherently know that there's something better. There's something better. And the people just inherently know that there's more to life than this. And you've heard of probably, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it said, you know, that in every one of us, there's a Jesus shaped hole, you know, we know, we just know that this is, I'm made for more than this. There's got to be more to life than this. I remember a few years ago, seeing an interview with Tom Brady, where he's, after he's won a couple Super Bowls, and he's a multi-millionaire, and he's talking about, there's got to be more than this. This can't be all there is. And I think, how tragic is that? Especially in the news now, where, you know, it's just a tragedy of his marriage falling apart, and, and here he's got, you know, $300 million in the bank or whatever, and it's not enough. There's got to be more to life than this. And there is. There is. And we who are Christians, we know there is. We know that there's a God who loves us, who wants to come and make his home in us, to dwell, you know, to his spirit to dwell within us. To have a, a relationship with the creator of the universe, to see him working in our lives, to know that the things that I'm going through in my life, the difficulties, the challenges, the good times, the hard times, that 
those experiences are not just for me, but they're for the furtherance of his kingdom, that I might bless others, that I might be used by him to bring others to a saving knowledge of him that that I, I've created with a purpose, you know, and, and without Jesus, man, I think you just know there's got, there's gotta be something else. So I want to kind of finish with this thought. Why does the church, why do people in the church seem to have this idea as well? Why do there still seem to be people that seem to think that marriage is the answer? Is this promoted in the church? And I think it is. And I don't think it's necessarily behind the pulpit. And I don't think it's in your face. Get married and you'll, you'll be happy. But I think it, there's a subtlety in something that's neglected by the church. And that is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you want to read a good marriage chapter, 1 Corinthians 7 is the place to go. But Paul says this in verse 7. He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one is his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I am. And he goes on and he talks about this um, here and there throughout the chapter. Paul talks about how it is good to be single. There's a, there, it's, it's a good thing to be single. And he talks about how a married person, their, their, their time, their affections are, are divided because they have to, they have to take care of someone else. They have to, they have to care for their spouse. That's part of their calling as a spouse is to care for that other person. But as a single person, you can be wholly singly devoted to the Lord and you can go where God tells you to go. And, and you're not, um, you're not encumbered. I hate to use that word encumbered by another person, but I experienced this myself. I experienced this very, I remember this very clearly. Uh, when I was a single man, I would go home at the end of the day. I could lay down on my floor and read my Bible. I could uh, just go, Hey, I'm going to go to church Bible study and I could do this and I can do that. And then when I got married, there was a person in my house. And when I'd come home, she'd often say, Hey, do you want to watch TV? Or Hey, do you want to cuddle? Or Hey, do you want to go out to dinner? And I found that I would be like, I was going to read my Bible, but I think I'm going to go hang out with her for a little bit. I was going to do this, but now there's this other person in my house. And it wasn't that that was bad or evil. <laughs> it was just different. But Paul talks about that singleness is a good thing. And yet I think oftentimes in the church, singles are treated like a second class of person. There's like, all this focuses on marriage conferences and and young married couple groups and this and that. And they have the singles groups. Now, I never liked the singles groups at church. And I went to a couple over the years when I was a single person. And one of the things that I, I found was very kind of annoying about it was the amount of time we spent in the single group talking about how, how to... Um, have a better marriage like talking about communication and talking about well this is where the downfalls come and it was all about like preparing you for your next marriage because your last marriage failed or something 
Um, now, there's nothing wrong when you're single about learning about marriage, especially if you desire to be married. But it's one of those things that unfortunately happens in church where you have single people, uh, especially more mature single people, you know, late 30s, 40s, 50s, and they get harassed with this idea of like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to settle down? When are you going to, you know, you need to find yourself a husband. When are you going to find yourself a husband? And a lot of times those people are like, I'm just serving Jesus right now. You know, when he wants to bring me a husband, he can bring me a husband. He knows where I am. But there's this pressure that's put on them. Like there's something wrong with them because they don't have that other person. Rather than saying, hey, praise God. You know, praise God that he has you in this place where he has you right now. I pray that God will use you in a way that he could never use a married person because you are you are free to move and go where he calls you to do unencumbered. Again, I hate that word, but I just used it twice. So I think we need to be careful with how we treat the single people in our churches, that we don't treat them like second-class citizens, that we don't leave them out of things because, well, this is a married couple's thing. This is this is for married group. You know, it's so easy for us to divide our church up into these subgroups. And so the single people miss out on the experience of the married people and the married people miss out on knowing single people and the single people feel like second-class citizens and the children miss out on the experience of the senior saints and the senior saints miss out on the exuberance of the young people and the older people aren't sharing their experience and their wisdom with the younger one because they're hanging around with each other. So all that to say is this, single people, before you get married, make sure you are satisfied, that you're content with Jesus alone. Make sure when you're getting married that you're not looking to that person to be who Jesus is supposed to be in your life. And if you are married today and you're struggling and you're saying, man, I've just been dealing with disappointment and resentment, maybe you've been looking to that person to be Jesus for you. Maybe they're caught up in sin. Maybe they're struggling with things. Maybe they're angry and they're bitter and they're resentful because they were looking to you to be the answer. Well, remember this. Jesus is the answer. So seek first the kingdom of God. And by first, it doesn't mean first, like do that first thing in the morning and then get on with your day. It means seek primarily the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Just continue to pursue godliness, holiness. Continue to pursue sanctification. In other words, continue to desire to be more like Jesus. Continue to examine your life. Continue to better yourself. Continue to strive to be Christ-like and to love people like Christ loved them. If you're married today, do your part. Regardless of what they're doing, do what God has called you to do as a spouse. God bless you. Talk to you next time.